Well, God, I come before you realizing more than ever that I can't change lives. I can't change hearts. But I believe that you can. With every fiber of my being, I believe that you can work through your word by your spirit power to change hearts, to change lives. And so we come dependent on your word to change us tonight. We pray tonight as your people that you would help us to be exposed to uh, the razor of your word, to, to be formed, to be changed by your truth tonight. Because we want to show off you to the world and that won't happen unless we look more like you. So we pray that you would make us more like you through your word. Change us, O oh God, tonight. In Jesus' name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. When I was nine or ten years old, I was in a really large children's choir. I had, uh, there were probably 250 to 300 children in this children's choir that I was in. And I remember one day we showed up to practice on a Sunday afternoon, like many of you will be doing shortly, to practice for a concert. And this time, though, the church brought in a guest instructor from Great Britain, accent and all. And my friend and I were sitting in a chair near the front of the class, and we kept elbowing each other, whispering, distracting ourselves, distracting other people. And suddenly, this guy from Great Britain wound up like a Major League Baseball pitcher and flung a piece of chalk as hard as he possibly could. I'm not making this up. Right in the seat next to my friend and I, and we're like, you have her attention, sir. And he said, if my memory serves me correctly, there will be no complacency during my instruction. And we're like, what does that mean? The obstacle of complacency. The obstacle of complacency. The wall of complacency. Just not giving a care. Thinking we, we don't need to pay attention. The Berlin Wall surrounded East Germany from April 19, August 1961 until November 1989, almost 30 years, almost as long as I've been alive. The Berlin Wall surrounded East Germany. It was an obstacle. It was a wall between the outside world of freedom and people surrounded uh, by this obstacle. We're living in a world of fear, of hopelessness, of freedomlessness. A few people tried to escape and they were either imprisoned or killed for trying to escape this, this, this world of, that had become their home, this, this prison that had become their home. And so people tried to escape, but after a while, after hundreds of people tried to escape, and very few got through, and the few that tried to escape, maybe that did succeed, uh, life was a lot different for them. And, and, and word didn't really get back into East Germany about what was going on out in West Germany or around the rest of the world. And the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, uh, sent out these little flyers promoting this regime of communism saying, you know, this is a bright future. We're, we have it better than the rest of the world. So don't leave East Germany. This is where you want to be. And so eventually, after years and years went by, most people became apathetic. They settled. They became complacent. 
They stopped trying to escape. They stopped trying to look beyond to the life beyond the Berlin Wall. And they didn't even really know what they were missing out on. We have obstacles in our lives too. But I believe the biggest obstacle for our generation in America, for young people and older people alike, is that we have an easy life. The life is great. I remember when I was a teenager, I didn't have to worry about the food in my fridge. I didn't have to worry about clothes in my closet. We had plenty of that. I didn't have to worry about having heat in our home or air conditioning in the summertime. We had all of that. I didn't have to worry about that. My dad had a steady job. The same was the case for my wife, Stephanie, and the same is the case for most of you young people and for most of you older people as well. Life is great. And I think the biggest obstacle is that life is great. In this American dream, in this American life, we start to lose sight of what we really don't have because we think we have it all. We think we have it all. And so we as Christians, for Christ followers, to be living in America where everything seems to be handed to, that, handed to us. I mean, yes, we work, but we have good jobs, you know, and if we, if we, want, if we want peace... And, and, and we don't really feel good at church, we can take a pill. If we, if we are too nerved up after a long week of work, we can plan a vacation, etc., 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 etc. And so this easy life becomes our obstacle to really knowing and following Jesus Christ. We live in a world where we can just take palatable amounts of Christianity, small doses of following Jesus. There's no really real reason to be weird about following Jesus, Right? Or to really radically follow him. Uh, because we don't really face suffering, real, tangible suffering, for following Jesus in the United States. We don't really uh, face persecution for Jesus' sake in the United States. And so we kind of start to just become apathetic. We just start to become complacent. We start to think we don't need anything else. We don't need anything more. We have need of nothing. And our walk with Jesus Christ becomes settled. Does that make sense? Going nowhere. Not really continuing to grow, to become more like him, or stick our neck out in the line in case we just, we we don't want to mess up our nice American life. So let's just ride the complacent plane. Let's just live the American life. And I think that's the most serious obstacle, especially for you young people growing up. Right now, 15, 16, 18 years old, you don't have to worry about your everyday life. And so when we talk about suffering for Jesus' sake, if we talk about following him to the ends of the earth for the glory of the gospel and the glory of God, that doesn't seem to really connect with reality because you're just going to school, eating three meals a day, playing sports, watching movies, listening to music, meeting with friends, going on vacations— Etc., etc., etc. That's the American life. So somehow the Bible just doesn't seem to connect when it talks about suffering in this life for the sake of the gospel, before glory. Somehow it doesn't connect when we talk about uh, expending and being spent for the gospel, for Jesus. Because it's like, well, okay, that's nice. So we tend to live behind this obstacle of the great life. The great life, the easy life. We're not the only ones who have, who have faced this 
this mission of following Jesus, of knowing him in an in a, in a environment where it's easy, an environment that's so affluent and wealthy. I know some of you are struggling financially, as most of us are probably, but at the same time, we have it eons better than the rest of the world, especially for most of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we get sucked into this easy life of religiosity, just taking little doses of Christianity, palatable amounts of Jesus, just enough to help us feel better when our day doesn't go the way we want it to go, and we just become complacent. So how are we supposed to respond to Jesus when life is great? That seems like an odd question, perhaps, to some of you. But I think, I believe it's the biggest obstacle for young people and us older people alike. How are we supposed to respond to Jesus when life is great, when life is easy? When we really don't have to worry about tomorrow because of the decisions we're making for Jesus' sake. So we're not the only ones. There was a church in the ancient city of Laodicea that was in an extremely wealthy environment. And Jesus had some shockingly relevant words for this church, these believers in the the city of Laodicea. And the Apostle John was inspired by the Spirit to write to the church of Laodicea this message because they had it all, they thought. They thought they had need of nothing. Life was great. Life was easy. Life was wealthy. The whole city was just on a nice plane of nice Laodicean life. Really, really, really similar to the American dream, the American life. So turn with me to Revelation, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as it should properly be called. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, starting in verse 14. To the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm. And neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Whoa. Because you say I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The biggest obstacle for you and I is really the great American lie. And it's really similar to what was going on in the church of Laodicea. And I didn't see this. I still have trouble seeing this obstacle. But I really didn't see it for what it was really worth until I went to India. I remember arriving in India and the first time I stepped off the plane, what I saw was what they didn't have. I remember noticing what the pastors were wearing on their feet. Old shoes, or no shoes at all. 
I remember going to the orphanage and sleeping with, these, with, with over 200 children in this, this large orphanage, and the children had, had so little. So I noticed, wow, they don't even have a comb. or They only have one set of clothes, and they wear that same set of clothes every single day. They eat the same food every single day, and we went to these little village churches, and the pastors had so little. So I noticed what they didn't have. I noticed what they lacked, and... I had more stuff in my two pieces of luggage than most of these people had in their entire home. I'm not making that up. I had more clothes and more stuff in my two pieces of luggage than most of these people had in their entire home. Most of them ate rice every single day for every single meal, every single day of the week. And so I went to bed that first night thinking, wow, it's so poor. These people have so little. It's like they have nothing. And the next morning I woke up at 5 a.m. to hear two, almost 200 children singing songs, praising God, praying. And where is that noise coming from? So I, I went downstairs in my brand new North Face hiking shoes, my, my zip-off hiking pants, my Columbia shirt, specially designed for hot weather because I don't want to be uncomfortable in India, right? I walked downstairs and I saw tears of joy streaming down the, the children's smiling faces. There were no adults around. Children five years old to 18 years old were leading their own hour-long, solid hour of worship to Jesus Christ. All the time I had realized what they didn't have. And suddenly when I saw these children smiling praying, crying over the wonder and the joy of Jesus, simply knowing Jesus Christ, I realized how poor I was and how rich they were. They were rich in Jesus Christ in ways I couldn't even comprehend. I was the one who was poor. They were the ones who were rich. And I clung to all my stuff, and I I still tend to cling to my stuff. Because we think that's where we're going to find peace. That's where we're going to find satisfaction. That's where we're going to find happiness. Going on vacations, uh, getting nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with going on a vacation. There's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. But somehow, we get caught up in the great American lie that that's all there is and that we don't really need anything else. And what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea and to us as believers This was written to a literal church, but it applies to all believers, as you'll see at the end of this chapter in verse 22, because it says, He who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So we ought to listen. And their problem and our problem is that we forget what we really need, and that's Jesus Christ alone. That he really is enough. Somehow we get caught up in this this American lie that if we have nice clothes and great food and money and good jobs and a nice, safe, warm house to live in, that Jesus can just be a nice add-on app to use in our life when he's most needed, when we are feeling kind of down or lonely, then we'll just open up the Jesus app and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thanks for perking up my day today. That's nothing more than moralistic, therapeutic deism. Garbage.
that's our obstacle. That we don't realize that the great American life is actually a great American lie. That we think that if we're living in this American life, we have all that we need, and Jesus can just be put on the back burner as a nice add-on, a nice post-it note to look at occasionally when we go to church. And Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea and to us, he says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. Cold being totally indifferent, not even caring that, about Christ, being separated from him. Hot would be walking in a relationship with him, daily communion with him, right? Lukewarm is, yeah, I, I know Jesus, but he's just kind of a nice... Um, well, what I go to when I'm down. When everything else that I'm living for doesn't really meet my expectations, then I'll, then I'll go to Jesus. Maybe, when it's convenient. It's interesting because Laodicea was positioned in a place where they couldn't get directly get hot water or really cold water. So they built this aqueduct to, towards the city and by the time the water came from the city to the north that had hot springs and a city from the south that had cool water by the time it got to Laodicea it was lukewarm have you guys ever picked up an open cup of uh, Coca-Cola and you think it's going to be you know it's just been poured and, and it turns out to actually have been sitting out for two days you know have you ever done that no you're thinking just kind of like pick up this, this cup of soda or lemonade or iced tea or whatever it is and you drink and you're like, Egh. Jesus said, you know what? Because you are just okay with apathy, with complacency, it's actually sickening to my stomach. It's sickening. Don't miss verse 14 though. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of, all, of the creation of God, or really interpreted the originator of all creation would be a better way to understand that. That's the one who's saying, you make me sick to my stomach. The God of all creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who is the source of life says, I am sickened because you just don't seem to care. You're apathetic. And you don't realize that you're living in this barrier. This, that you're not even experiencing life as it was meant to be because you aren't tapping into my life. You don't really know me. You don't really fellowship with me. You're just lukewarm and you just use me as an add-on to your life. And so the great American lie is that the great American life is enough. And Jesus can just be tacked on, just be tacked on to our lives when it's convenient. Verse 17, but because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is pointing out the three main industries in Laodicea. 
that in which these people found their peace or, or their, their, their fulfillment or meaning in life, their ability to say, we have need of nothing. Laodicea was known for their wool industry, and so uh, particularly black wool, and they were known for producing garments of black wool known all around the Middle East. And Jesus saying, actually come to me for real garments, righteousness, to walk with me. They were known for their banking industry. So he says, actually find not your worth in your banking industry that you have so much money, but actually find your worth in what I will give you, the peace and the joy that I will give you in relationship with me, because in me you will find fulfillment and it will be for God's glory, not just you and yourself. And then it gets to this ISAB, which is kind of interesting, and because there was this temple to this god, Asclepius. And, and, and this, at this temple, they had a medical school, and it was known to produce this ISAB to, that would cure common eye maladies around the Middle East. And so people would come to this medical school and this temple to Asclepius, and they would have their eye problems cured by this eye salve. And he's saying, you actually don't even see. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And that's exactly the stuff that they thought they had the total opposite of. They were rich, well-clothed, and they had the cure to eye, the eye problems. And they didn't see. I'm so concerned about myself that I don't see. And I'm concerned for us as a church that we don't really see that the great American life as it's popularized is really a lie. And it doesn't bring fulfillment like we think it will. And so Jesus tells them, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus wants to have a loving relationship. And the reason why I believe this is written to believers is because it was written to a church. And sure, there might have been unbelievers within the broader church, but the word that Jesus uses for love there is only used, phileo, is only used for Christians and other places in the New Testament. And somehow these Christians, these people who had placed their trust in Christ, had lost sight of having a real fellowship, a real relationship with the one who had saved them. And we can lose sight of that. It's so easy. The picture is kind of like... like a husband and a wife having a major break in their marriage. They're not divorced, but they have this major break in their marriage because, we'll say, the wife has chosen to find her peace and her satisfaction and her fulfillment in other loves. And the husband has come home and he's saying, 
can, can, can we share a meal together? Please let me in. I love you. I love you. Can we share a meal together? Can we be together? Can you find in me everything that you need? Jesus says. Because I'm enough. I will provide the true riches. I will provide the true garments of righteousness. I will provide the true love that you're seeking. The peace that will satisfy that void in your life. Only me, Jesus says. Nothing else. Nothing else. Not all the wealth in the world. You think you have everything and you have nothing Jesus simply says, listen to me. He's longing for us to, to be in a relationship with him where we find that he is enough. Not Jesus plus other things. Not Jesus plus a good job, plus a nice house, plus a nice vacation. Not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Young people, listen to me. You will go through life, you will go through high school and graduate, and probably all of you guys will get good grades, and you'll get offers from colleges to go and explore more degrees, to get a good job, and follow the American life, to get the American dream. And most of it is a big lie, because the bill of goods that, that we are sold is that in these things, you can get enough. So at the end of your life, you can say, I've needed nothing. And Jesus can just be a nice add-on to our Baptist world rather than the source of everything. The big obstacle is the great American lie that we think we have everything and we actually have nothing. We actually have nothing. And so Jesus simply says, return. That's what the word repent means. Return to me. Return to Jesus because he is enough. That's what made these little children in India weep with joy when they woke up at five o'clock in the morning. They didn't have anything that I had. They didn't have a pair of shoes. They were fortunate to have a toothbrush. Yet they were joyful in Jesus Christ because he was their everything. I remember watching a video the autobiography of Steve Green. All right, so this is to the older crowd now. You know who Steve Green is, right? You know who Steve Green is? Christian, singer, yes. Where's Alex Good? I know, and Bob Thayer, you and I, and me, yes, we love Steve Green, right? Okay, I remember watching an autobiography of him, and he said, I've come to the place in my walk with Christ that if everything else was stripped away, Jesus would be enough. And I've never forgotten that. Because I'm thinking, wow, this guy's been able to travel all over the world singing, multiple Dove Awards. I'm sure he has a nice American life. And he said, you know what? All of that could be stripped away. And Jesus is enough for me. I don't need anything else. I don't need anything else. So Jesus says, those whom I love if he loves you, he's given himself for you. He's given himself for us. That's why he's rebuking us in this passage. And he's saying, I love you, therefore I'm going to reprove you and I'm going to discipline you and I'm calling you to return to me and to be zealous, to be passionate, to stick your neck out on the line, to forget what, the, the, what everybody else is living for. 
behind this wall of, 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 uh, of peace, temporary peace, temporary happiness, temporary joy, and find that Jesus Christ is everything. Verse 21 and verse 22. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, the goal is that we get to be with him for all eternity. We get to be with Jesus on his throne. I can't even wrap my mind fully around that verse. That if we endure as genuine followers of Jesus Christ, that he will grant for us to sit down with him on his throne, to be with him, just as the Father allows Christ to sit on his throne. Whoa! That's what we're supposed to keep in mind. When everything in this little globe of life says, concentrate on the now, concentrate on the present, concentrate on getting more pay, better job, better benefits, better life, better vacation, And Jesus is saying, no, in the end, you're going to be with me. Now, when I was a teenager, I was told that being hot, okay, so there's this contrast, cold or hot. And if we're going to return to Jesus and find that he's enough, then we have to do certain things. And so they would say, so if you want to be on fire for Jesus, that means you've got to burn your Christian rock CDs. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that was supposed to be a joke, but anyway. Uh, that's, I'm not making this up. So people would say, burn your Christian rock CDs if you want to be on fire for Jesus. I don't know, maybe that was said here 20, 30 years ago. I don't know. Where I was, that was being said too. And they also said, and this is what I heard. Maybe I was interpreting it uh, as a 16-year-old, but this is, how I, this is how I interpreted it. Okay, if you want to be on fire for Jesus, then tighten your belt and simply try to be a better person. If you want to be on fire for Jesus, then, then uh, employ kind of self-help psychology to change your language, change your behavior, and try to be a more moral person. Try to be a, a nicer person. Wear the right clothes, say the right things, go to church. Uh, here's one. If you want to be on fire for Jesus, get involved in all the programs and functions and services of the church. And then we'll all see, oh yeah, he's really on fire for Jesus. And so maybe I got it wrong, but here's how I interpreted that. Okay, I've got to make these things happen in my life. So when I was Nick's age, or when I was Andrew's age, when I was Adam's age, I'd think, I've got to make these things happen in my life, so I'm going to jump into all the action at church. There's nothing wrong with that, right? We want you to be involved in church. But I got the whole motivation wrong. It wasn't out of a relationship with Jesus. It was to prove that I was on fire for God. Have any of you struggled with that? Where you know you're, you're doing lots of good things, minus the burning Christian rock CDs. <laughs> Come on, relax. Okay, I could add lots of other things. Let's burn all our videotapes and DVDs too, okay? I don't know, anyway. <laughs> do lots of good things 
Use the right language. Yeah, we don't want to be profane. Dress modestly. Right, okay, dress modestly. Guys and girls, be involved in church. Do good Christian service. Go on a mission trip. Teach Sunday school. Mentor some younger kids. And you can do all those things and miss this. Jesus wants you. He doesn't want what you do. He wants you. Jesus wants to be in a relationship with you. That He wants to sit down and have a meal with you. And one day he wants you to have this hope that one day you will rule and reign with him in the eternal state on a remade earth. Whoa! All ministry must come out of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Not, of a, not out of a list of moral therapeutic deism. And that's pretty much what the young youth generation of today is bought into. That I do lots of good things and then I use Jesus as an add-on app in my life when I'm feeling bad, when I feel guilty. And Jesus wants us to return to him because he's enough. And then in that relationship, our motivation changes, our behavior changes, sure. But it's him working out the change in us because we're walking with him. Is communion something that we just do when we drink grape juice and eat crackers once a month at church? I'm really convicted by this. Communion is supposed to be every day with Christ. It's not supposed to be once a month. It's every day. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Verse 22, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We could remain behind this wall, this obstacle of thinking that Jesus can just be an extra. And we can just go through life and never really realize what we're missing out on. See, I could go to this passage and preach about how you need to change your behavior, but what Jesus is really wanting us to do is change who we're, rela- who, who we're fellowshipping with. Who are we finding our meaning in? Because that's the root. That's the root. Turn really quick to the end of this book. I saw this a few days ago and it brought me to tears. And here's where we're going to wrap it up. Revelation 21. Because I saw some clear connections in the words used between Revelation 3 and Revelation 21 and it shocked me because this is what we're supposed to be concentrating on. And I think that's what those little children in India are concentrating on. I think that's what we're supposed to be concentrating on, that Jesus alone is enough. Verse 1, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no, no longer any more death and there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Are we wrapping our minds around the fact that there will be a day when there will be no more fibromyalgia, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis, cancer, heart disease, lupus? There will be a day when there will be no more disease. There will be no more car accidents. There will be no more death. And Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And the big end goal of the gospel is not that we change our behavior, but that our relationship has changed and that one day we will see him face to face and we will be with him and he will be with us. And that will be enough. That will be enough for us. That's what we're supposed to wrap our lives around. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne, whoa, He who sits on the throne, that's in chapter 3, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Write, This is the true and faithful witness. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We had to just sit on that verse for a little while. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Do you see the connection? Jesus, our relationship with him, and the goal, the hope that one day you and I will be with him. And the church, we, the believers, will be his bride. We are his bride, and we will be with the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world so that we might be called his own. You see? It's about a relationship with God and that in Jesus Christ you find your true riches in Jesus now and forever. So the three responses to to Jesus are simply this. Realize the obstacle, the great American lie. And listen to Jesus' longing for a real relationship. And lastly, the, the third response that you and I have to have to the one who loves us is to return to him Return to him in a real relationship, a communion with him, to walk with him, to find in him that he is all that we need. All that we need. And then the result of those three responses to Jesus is that we actually find true riches. Now and forever. 
when our hope will become sight, when there will be no longer any more need for faith. When we won't have to believe anymore because our faith will be sight. So young people, I'm talking to you right now. Return to Jesus. I know that limited interaction that I have as a youth pastor with you is that many of you struggle with this because it's so easy to get sucked in to the great American lie and to forget about that actually being the obstacle to realizing Jesus is enough. And we need to listen, guys and girls. We need to listen to what Jesus is saying, that in a relationship with him, we find all that we need because he's enough. And maybe you're thinking, ah, I, I think I can work my, array, my way around this. I mean, I can read my Bible every day, every few days. Pray when I feel like I need to pray. I come to church, I'm involved in programs. But that's not it, guys. That's not it, girls. Jesus is looking for a daily communion just like a marriage relationship. I long to come home to see my wife. We should long every day to be with our Savior, to find in him the source, our life, our everything. And I think for the rest of us, the same is true, that if we're living in this American life, we can kind of just get focused on what's right in front of us and lose sight of the, the future hope that Jesus Christ is one day going to come again and we will see him face to face. And we just get driven down into the drive that everybody else is following. Live for today. Get better pay, get better benefits, etc., etc., etc. That's what I've got to realize every day. I'm preaching to myself. I've got to realize that Jesus is enough. Or else how am I supposed to go out to the world and tell them that Jesus saves and that Jesus is my all in all when I'm not actually living it? So let's realize and listen and return to Jesus because in him we will find all that we need. It was interesting because in 1989 when Ronald Reagan shouted out those famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There were some people in Berlin, West, uh, in, in East Germany, who didn't actually believe that things had changed. Some people did. But for other people, they realized they th- they, their entire life was in that vacuum was in East Germany. And I think for some of you, maybe your entire life has been in this sort of moralistic, behavioral version of Christianity, of an easy life religiosity. And that's kind of wordy. But I think it's effective. That if we, and you can just 
what Jesus is saying, hey, look, there's something more. There's something bigger out there. And he wants to break through the wall of all that and come and eat a meal with you tonight. Tonight, you can return to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess tonight, Lord, that so often we get caught up in thinking that all the things in life, when we add them together, will be enough for us. And that we can just tack on a relationship with you, convenient, small prayers, French fry-sized faith, and still call that living in the hope of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, tonight we repent of that, that narrow, that small, that limited view of knowing you. And we pray tonight that you would work out something radically different in our lives that would change us from the inside out, that we would, yes, respond in love to you, return to a vital relationship with you, so that just like those, our brothers and sisters around the world, even if we didn't have anything, we would have tears of joy streaming down our faces realizing that you are enough. And tonight we pray that you would work that change out in our lives so that when we go out as a missional church on your mission, we would actually, we would actually shout out what we really believe and what we're really living, not just what we've been told to say. God, we pray tonight that we would surrender everything to you and that you would refocus this church on a real relationship, on communion with you. And then out of that, would you do something amazing so that others will come to know that your son is really enough. In Jesus' name.